as you're turning, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we should have the text up on the screen today, so you can follow along there. But if you do have your Bible, I would encourage you to, to follow along in your own Bible. It's just always helpful, I think, if you've got your own personal text in front of you to look at that and just be becoming more familiar with your Bible and where in your Bible the truths that you want to turn to are located. So we always want to provide that for guests who might not have a Bible, but if you've got your own, I really encourage you to start there. Uh, before we, we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, I want to echo the truth of that last song that you would speak to us. And Lord, we come anticipating that you will. You promise us in your word that you've inspired every phrase, every passage, everything that is contained in Scripture comes from your mind, is in accordance with your character, leads us to truth, and ultimately shows us Jesus. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, that you would send your spirit, that you would fill us, or that you would be faithful to your promises, which we know that you are. Or you'd be faithful to your promise that in the preaching of your word, Christ would be held up and glorified, that we would see him clearly, and that we would be made more like him. So, God, we ask for you to do that. Do that miraculous thing in our midst this morning. Push away all the cobwebs, God. Give us clarity. Let us see. Let us hear. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, do any of you guys ever get test anxiety? You ever have a big test and get nervous? I don't typically get test anxiety, but I know folks who do. But I think part of it, too, is it kind of depends on the nature of the test. I mean... If you're walking into a test and you feel pretty confident, you know, the subject matter, or you're an expert in the subject matter, you're probably not too nervous, right? Well, I was talking with someone last week who was describing a test he had taken, and I thought, that would be the kind of test that would give me test anxiety. This individual took a test that measured in detail how well he kept the law. That's kind of intimidating, right? He sat down for a test, and it was a police exam. And this exam had all sorts of questions. One of them was, how often do you break traffic laws? I mean, that's brutal, right? It's multiple choice. So then it says, daily, weekly, once a month, once every six months, or never. That's one of the questions on the test. There's another one that goes on and asks, how truthful have you been on this exam? Have you lied about any of these questions? At which point are you, are you scrambling to go back? You know, it wasn't every six months. It is daily that I break the traffic. I mean, that's an intimidating thing. How much more so that this test that's, that's testing, in part, how you follow the regulations of the laws of the state, in the knowledge that after you take this test, if you pass it, they're going to follow up with another test, a polygraph test. So they're going to test all those questions you answered and make sure you weren't lying. You think you might have a little test anxiety going into that test? That's, that's kind of an intimidating thing. You know, have you ever stolen a pen from your employer? Those are the kinds of questions on this. Have you ever lied to your boss? Have you ever cheated on a test? Not this one. <laughs> and questions like that go on and on. 
and then to know that you're going to be held to the standard of a polygraph, which I'm just thinking, I'm going to be sweating so much bullets on that polygraph, how are they going to get any accuracy out of it? But somehow they do. That's some serious scrutiny, right? That could be an intimidating thing. Fortunately, if you fail that kind of test, it's just going to put off your opportunity to be hired by the police department. In Galatians, the stakes are much higher. In our text today, we're going to see Paul say this in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a pretty serious test of your obedience to the law, right? This paragraph we're looking at today in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 10 to 14, is really probably the most controversial part of the entire letter. This, this is a piece of the letter where Paul begins to pull in a bunch of texts from the Old Testament, and he's weaving a really complex argument to drive home the truth and the nature of his gospel to his audience. So, so there's some complexity. So we, we have to pay attention and follow carefully the arguments he's making. But here's the really cool thing. I, I think there's a high probability that as we're reading this this morning, we're actually getting a glimpse into Paul's logic and the biblical arguments he made when he went into the synagogues. You ever thought, man, I read the book of Acts and I would have loved to have heard what Paul preached. I would have loved to have sat there and, and seen you know, when it says he goes to the Jews first and into the synagogues and, and preaches to them Christ and him crucified. What did that look like? What did that sound like? What, what was he saying? You know, Paul, this expert in the scriptures, how did he present to them Jesus? We're going to see a glimpse of that in these four verses this morning. So would you turn with me? Look, Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, keeps the law, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The first thing Paul is laying out for us this morning is that there is an obligation in the law. The law has an obligation. He, he can make the statements he'll make as we work our way through the passage because the law carries expectations. Now, one of the things is there's, there's two schools of thought within the Pharisees. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee in his day and age. Well, there's two schools of thought that exist within the Pharisees. And one looked at the obligations of the law and basically viewed it as a pass-fail exercise. In this camp, you had Jews who argued, essentially, if you kept the law... 51% of the time, even though you weren't perfect, you were still righteous enough. So there's a group of Pharisees who, in studying the Scriptures, have said, you know what the law's obligation is? Be just 1% better than you are bad. That was their thought. 
Now, obviously, the problem with that approach is it's unbiblical, right? It's, it's a really nice way to do an end around the fact that there's a prospect of failure, right? That's, that's really convenient. You can screw up 49% of the time. There's, there's lots of room for error here. But the entire Old Testament witness pushes back on this. And Paul doesn't waste any time in quoting from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, I want to take a moment to acknowledge this morning that there are some scholars today who would argue, you know, we've misunderstood Paul. The reformers, Luther, Calvin, those men, the Protestant tradition that flows out of them, they, they've, they've gotten Paul wrong, and because of it, they've kind of twisted the gospel. Now, now, here's the argument as it goes according to these people. This school of thought is called the New Perspective on Paul. So they go back and they read these letters, and they see a different reading from the text. And they argue that Paul is not condemning the whole law here. He, he's not looking at this, and when he says works of the law, he's saying the whole Old Testament. No, they say Paul is only condemning the ceremonial law. Most of you are like, the ceremonial law? What, what is that? Well, in other words, Paul is condemning things that are markers of the covenant. He's condemning things that are ethnic markers. So he, he's condemning things that differentiate a Jew from a Gentile. So they take things where Paul talks about there should be no boasting. Faith does away with boasting. Well, yeah, because Jews boasted in their circumcision. They boasted in keeping Sabbath. They, they boasted in keeping kosher. And so faith does away with that. that. That part of the law is gone. But there's still other areas of the law that you, you have to work out in addition with faith in order to be justified. That's what they would say. Well, again, Galatians 3.10 is a problem for this philosophy. Listen again. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book. Now, the New Perspective scholars, they argue that Paul, Paul here is just being hyperbolic. He, he's, just, he's just being dramatic and, and saying it in a really big way to make his point. He's exaggerating this for polemical reasons. He doesn't really mean the entire law. The problem is that nothing in the text suggests Paul is being overly dramatic. In fact... If you look at the context that Deuteronomy 27 is taken from, we see the opposite. In Deuteronomy 28:58, Moses said this, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous. And there were at least another... Six verses like that in the two chapters surrounding the text that Paul quotes here I could have pulled from. Moses is clear. I'm not just talking about circumcision. I'm not just talking about ceremonial things. I'm talking about the entire law. So, this whole idea that you can throw that requirement out, that you can lower the standard as some Pharisees are trying to do, just, just lower the standard. So if you've got a pretty good record, you'll still be okay. Well, it doesn't work. From the fall to the Mosaic Covenant all the way to Christ, Scripture everywhere demands 
perfect obedience. That's the obligation of all. It's what the law requires. That's what we need to do. Think about this. Adam and Eve, how many times do they sin before they're punished? Once. Just one time. Paul's not being dramatic to make a point. He's saying exactly what God communicated to Israel. The law requires that all its commandments and all its precepts and all its regulations be kept in full. End of story. And that's exactly what that other school of Pharisees taught. So you had the one school that said, you're good 51% of the time. You're not perfect, but you're righteous. And the other school said, no, that's incorrect. You have to keep all the law. Anything less than perfect obedience is failure. In other words, they're saying, God doesn't grade holiness on the curve. That's the issue. And the reason He doesn't grade holiness on the curve, even if He was to set it up that way, guess what? God sets the curve, and God's perfect. So even if you want to argue for that, it doesn't work. This leads us to our second point, the bigger issue Paul's driving home. If the obligation of the law is perfect obedience, then the law contains a serious limitation. Did you catch that? If the obligation of the law is perfection, then the law has a limitation. The law has a deficiency. Read along. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The obligation is perfect obedience. Now, the issue in Galatians isn't merely legalism. Although there's lots of legalism going on. I'm going I'm to prove myself right by doing certain things. The limitation of the law and the legalism that flows from it is that no one actually keeps it. Does that make sense? The obligation is you've got to be perfect. The limitation is nobody can do that. As Paul points out, you must abide by everything in the law. You must do them or else you'll be cursed. It's not just you have to have perfect convictions, right? It's not just what you believe to be truth and right and wrong has to be perfectly in line with Scripture. It's that what you believe to be right and wrong, what your convictions are, has to be perfectly in line with Scripture, and you have to live perfectly in line with those convictions 100% of the time, every second of every day. And the limitation goes even farther. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now it is evident, no one is justified before God by the law. Did you catch the implication? If you rely on works of the law, you're cursed. You try and do this by works, and you will fail. No one's justified by the law, because no one's kept it perfectly. The Old Testament consistently expresses this over and over. It's not just that the law says you've got to be perfect. The Old Testament, the law itself says nobody can be perfect. In 1 Kings 8.46, for there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul's argument is true historically. The Old Testament is filled with that argument. You must be perfect and nobody is perfect. 
but it's also true redemptive historically. In other words, it's not just true for the past, it's true today. Perfect obedience is still the expectation for people living in the New Testament and after. And the limitation is still there. We don't measure up. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem with the law is not the law itself. Well, this limitation comes from us. It comes from our depravity. Now, when I was in elementary school and we would get grades, my parents had a system set up, and it was really mostly my mom, where we would get paid for our grades. So, of course, when we received our report card, the first thing I did on the school bus home was I opened that report card and I started tallying. I mean, this is the closest I ever came to being an accountant. I was, I was running up those totals and I was checking. You know, in, in elementary school, you don't get A's and B's. It was a really cool thing in sixth grade when you get your first A's and B's. Like, oh, that's so cool. It was like one is poor, five is excellent, or vice versa. I don't remember. But you'd go, and we had a system that tallied. You know, if, if, if five was excellent and you had a five, a five was worth a dollar. And a four was worth 75 cents. And a three was 25 cents. And ones and twos didn't get you anything. So you'd tally all that up. And I, I would typically get a pretty good amount of money for schoolwork and substantially less for marks on behavior. <laughs> and and you just, I just kind of knew that was coming. It was like, I better make my money in the first half of this report card while they're actually addressing my grades. Because once it gets to my behavior, there's not going to be a whole lot more money going into the purse at this point. That was just the way it unfortunately worked out for me. Well, in God's system, unless the grade is perfect, unless the report card is perfect all the way through, you get nothing. In fact, rather than no reward and no blessing, you come home with a report card that has one four instead of a five. And it's not just that you're going to get less pay. Not even just that you'll get no pay. You're going to receive punishment. The implicit point Paul is making in verses 10 to 12 is that no one keeps the law according to the perfect standard that it requires because no one can keep it perfectly. The law is limited because it's dealing with our broken, fallen depravity. We, we don't have that ability. It's been, it's been marred from the fall. Law-keeping is a zero-sum game, you could say. It isn't some blessings and some curses according to the percentage by which you obey. Well, I obey 65% of the time, so I can expect 65% blessing in my life and, and 35% bad stuff, right? No, that's not how it works. It's not in eternity. I was obedient 65% of the time, so 65% of eternity I'm going to spend in heaven and 35% I'll spend in hell. I mean, obviously taking out the whole impossibility of the math of taking 65% of an infinite value. That's not the way God works the system. That's what Paul's showing us. A score of 99% obedience gets a grade of 100% curse. That's a pretty serious thing, right? There's not a lot of amens right there that kind of lands with a thud. 
Thankfully, Paul isn't done halfway through the verse. He continues in verse 11. Now it is evident, no one is justified before God by the law. Ah, but the righteous shall live by faith. Where the law curses, the gospel blesses. Now what he's doing here is he's quoting from Habakkuk. And he's repeating that justification is by faith, it's not by works. And what Paul is doing is he's jumping from the example he gave with Abraham earlier in chapter 3 and going all the way now to the minor prophets. So he's going from one end of the Old Testament of the Scriptures all the way to the other end. And he's making a point. It's not just that Abraham is some super unique individual that is made righteous by faith. No. Abraham's the father of faith, but we see now all the way at the other end of Scripture, here's Habakkuk, and he receives the same message. The righteous shall live by faith. When judgment comes, when God looks at the report card, only those who trust in Yahweh, in Habakkuk's sense, will have a hope of life. So like Abraham and Habakkuk, the people of God are called to trust in God even when life's circumstances seem to argue against such trust. So what does that mean for Abraham? Even though I'm old, even though my wife is decades on the wrong side of menopause, I will believe that you can give me a child. For Habakkuk, even as I watch Babylon grow in power, even as I watch Babylon conquer mighty Assyria, even as I see the sins of Judah and I, and I see that this means God is going to bring Babylon to come conquer us. I can entrust myself to God's goodness. Don't see it clearly. I know that immediately the future is bleak. But I can still find joy in God. It means even if your marriage seems just completely irreparable. It's just, just messed up. It's, it's filled with strife. There's room to hope in God. Even if your life seems just to be daily filled with loneliness, you just, you just go from one day to the next just feeling like there's no one who walks with you. God would have you know critical judgments of others might assault you every day. You, you know that there's people, people who shouldn't treat you this way. Maybe even people who are Christians who speak evil about you and their arrows cut. Like David, you believe and entrust yourself to God. In all these circumstances, God calls us to live by faith. And then Paul says something really sobering in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, to the one who does them, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, that's kind of a strange sentence, right? The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the one who does the law, shall live by them. Well, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the game has changed. You can't go back to the way things were in the Old Testament because the Messiah has arrived. If you give yourself over to circumcision, Galatians, then you're putting yourself back under the law. But here's the deal. 
The law was always pointing forward to Christ. You're going backwards. So if you take circumcision and go back under the law, that means you've now got to keep everything perfectly because the Old Testament sacrificial system doesn't work for you anymore. That's the old news. It's been replaced by Christ. You go back to the law now after Christ and faith is no fallback for you. That's what Paul's saying with those words. The law is not a faith. Your salvation, if you go back, is now dependent on your law-keeping and not your believing. Now, it's not that obedience is contrary to faith, but that going back under the law is contrary to faith. So, think of it this way. Any sort of salvation that has a scheme of, I'm going to work my way into God's good grace, I'm, I'm going to do right, any sort of law-keeping that... that looks back to the Old Covenant, like circumcision in Galatia, or, or just kind of tweaks the circumcision criteria. It makes it a more modern form of piety, right? It's a more contemporary version of piety. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn this. I'm going I'm to get some credit with God right now by being pious in, not circumcision, but fill in the blank. If you do those things, The new covenant blessings are vacant to you. You can't return to the old covenant. Those sacrifices are void because they always look forward to Christ. You go back now and your only hope is perfect obedience for all eternity. It's a scary thing. Your only chance to stand before God with any hope is you have to obey perfectly 100% of the time. Now, when we forget the law's obligation and the law's limitation, so you got to be perfect and you can't do it, that's when we start to leave the gospel behind. When we do those things, when we think that way, we start to move on to this tempting path that, you know, in my mind, when I think about things, when I, when I compare myself to others, I really start to think I'm morally superior. That's one of the things that's indicative of somebody who's, who's forgotten. Those obligations of the law and those limitations of the law. You start comparing yourself and you, you regard others as morally inferior. You do it so you can sustain that illusion of your own self-righteousness. You do it so that as you compare yourself to the lowest common denominator, your own self-esteem can get propped up a little bit. On paper... You probably still acknowledge you're a sinner. You know how to answer the questions. You would still say mentally, I, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, but in daily practice, you rarely regard yourself in this way. You're growing distant from the gospel. That's what Paul is saying is at stake when you start to walk back toward rule keeping. This is why Jesus rails against the self-righteous. Their posture puts their backs to the gospel. The gospel was a past need, not an ongoing provision. It's a dangerous place to be. Calvin puts it this way. The law justifies him who fulfills all its commands, whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of merit, of works, and rely on Christ alone. 
to be justified by your own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. You can't hold those two together. When it comes to justification, rule-keeping is not for believers, it's for doers. Nike basically stole the law slogan. Just do it. That's what the law says. Just do it. And just do it every day. And just do it every second. And never fail. That's a daunting thing. And because we can't, outside of faith, Paul reminds us, there's a curse. You fail to keep the law, you you fail to do that. And there's a curse that becomes involved. Now, this brings us to the final point. The real reason there's hope, the real reason Paul can talk in such a way of expectation, in such a way of joy, that the law has this ridiculously high obligation, and that the law has this incredible limitation, and that it's not just utterly devastating, is because the curse gets exchanged for a blessing. Follow along with me. After saying all this about the law, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The problem of the law's obligation is that there's a curse for disobedience. The limitation is that nobody can actually keep it. The only way freedom from the curse is achieved is if that curse gets paid by somebody else. So, Paul's been building up this explanation for the entire letter. In Galatians 1, he starts, remember, all the way back at the very beginning, the introductory letter, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That was the good news he proclaimed to us all the way back at the beginning of the letter. And he's been building up his argument, waiting to now detail out, how is that possible? How can Jesus deliver us from the present evil age? How can he save us from our sins? Well, our redemption happens because Christ becomes a curse for us. Verse 14 is an elaboration on the fact that Paul preached publicly. Remember he said, I publicly portrayed Christ as crucified. My preaching laid out that Christ was crucified. It's hope for you that you can have faith and you can believe and you can turn to that and rest in that. Well, he's now showing to what end that happens. By dying in the way the law promised, by dying in the way the law promised would bring a curse, Christ's crucifixion redeems people from the curse of the law, even when they fail to keep it. Remember I said this is a complex paragraph. It's got complexity to the arguments. One final time, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. He's citing a passage that promised a curse, that if you're hung on a tree, you'll be cursed. And the reason for that is the context in Deuteronomy and later in the Old Testament is that you hung someone on a tree as an indictment. Now, sometimes it was to execute them, but more often it was you've already executed them and you hang them from a tree as a sign to the community. This person had to be executed from their crime. They're cursed. They're cut off. So that's what Paul is is laying out in the context when he quotes from this, this Deuteronomy passage. Jesus died a death of such disgrace that it's difficult to illustrate that for a modern audience. I mean, how do, you, how do you make sense of that? That an innocent guy hangs from a tree and now he's cursed? Well, if the Messiah died, is disgrace enough? 
but that his death meant he was cursed by God. Now that's an outrageous thing. To even get a glimpse of that, we've got to get our minds around what's going on in Deuteronomy 27. Now, the context of what Paul's quoting, he has all these quotes that come from around Deuteronomy 27 in this passage. And the reason he's doing that is there's this remarkable thing going on. For those of you who aren't super familiar with Deuteronomy, it's a tricky book. Moses is about to send the people into the promised land. So he's, he's writing this book to remind them of everything that the law requires. And then they do this basically living illustration of what they're doing. They go out, and before entering the promised land, Moses takes the people of Israel and he divides them in half. He separates them. And he takes one half of the people, and he says, you go up and stand on Mount Gerizim. Stand on this mountain. And across from Mount Gerizim, immediately across the valley, is another mountain. And he takes the other half of the people, and he says, you go stand on Mount Ebal. You go stand over there. And this is what's going to happen. The people on this mountain represent all the blessings of the covenant. And the people on this mountain represent all the curses. And we're going to read through the blessings and the curses toward each other in this valley as a statement of what's at stake. And so they start to do this. And, and as they do it in, in Deuteronomy 27, the Levites begin to read the curses. And, and as they read each one out, the people on both mountains echo back, Amen. Now this is probably upwards of a million people on these two mountains. So you can see these Levites hear them reading out these passages and then a million voices. Amen! It's true! So the Levites call out, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Amen! The whole congregation echoes back. They acknowledge if anyone breaks any part of this covenant, they're cursed, which is the nation saying, you break this covenant and we will disassociate from you. You break this covenant and you're cut off from the people. You break this covenant and you're cut off from God. Now with that in mind, listen to Paul's words in verse 13. That's the context. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When Christ is nailed to the cross, He takes our curse. He takes everything that we have as lawbreakers and He puts it on His own back. And so, as surely as the nail secures Him to the tree, it also separates Him from God. And all the curse, all the punishment, all the exile that should be ours now gets pushed upon Jesus. That's what's happening in this text. And this is why the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and initially to Paul as a Jew because crucifixion and curse should never happen to the Messiah. The anointed one who will save his people can't be cursed. That's unimaginable. And Paul was almost right. The Messiah couldn't be cursed for his own evil or else he'd fail to be the Messiah. But Christ was cursed for us. The gospel hangs on those two words. 
he was cursed for us. What they're acknowledging here is penal substitution. That Christ receives our punishment in our place. And it's the cornerstone of the gospel. Christ taking our condemnation and taking the curse for us is the heart of the atonement. It's the heart of what happens in the gospel. Now, people despise this doctrine today. We sing songs about it. There's other people who would call themselves Christians who this turns their stomach. And that is a tragic, tragic thing. There's people who malign this idea that Christ becomes a curse for us, that He has to die on the cross. And they say, that's just bloody cross religion. That's barbaric. But the truth is as inescapable as it is scandalous. Christ stands in the place of sinners. He absorbs their punishment by dying a death of shame. And here's why. Christ becomes a curse for us. And then in verse 14, Paul says, so that. In other words, here's the reason why. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's not just that the curse goes away. It's that the curse and the blessing are exchanged. Now, there's some massive irony here. This this passage is ripe with irony. Think about this. The only perfect keeper of the law. There was one person who perfectly kept the law 100% of the time. And the only person to ever do that, to ever perfectly keep the law's requirements... The only person who's ever actually deserving of receiving the blessings of the promise is now placed under a curse. Finally, someone's kept the covenant. And now Christ undergoes the penalty for the covenant breaker. So that, so that the blessings of his obedience might flow to us. In his death, Everything that, sh- that sin should have made ours was made His. Did you catch that? In His death, everything that sin should have placed on us was placed on Him. What should have been our inheritance became His. And everything that was Christ's possession, every blessing that He had earned for His obedience, was now made ours. Our curse is gone, and it's nothing but blessing. It's the things we were singing about this morning. Now, if the nail pins our curse to Christ's body, then His blood is the means by which His blessings flow to us. Jesus becomes a curse so that Abraham might become a blessing to the Gentiles. Namely, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The reason, Paul is saying, God can relate to us like a father to a son is found in the cross. Because He crucifies His own Son. Paul reveals the wisdom of God that Jesus Christ was crucified. That Abraham's blessings might come. That we could be his God. That instead of hearing all the people echo Amen for the curses, we would hear all the people echo Amen for the blessings. Faith ensures that we have a union with Christ. It cleaves us to all the blessings that flow from Abraham, blessings that continually get more detailed as Scripture unfolds. There's a second reason God crucifies the Son. 
Paul says in this text, it's not just so we can get the blessings of Abraham. It's also so that we can receive God's Spirit. He's making an allusion here to Isaiah 44.3 and other places. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The blessing of Abraham is the Spirit. And the blessing of the Spirit comes through the penal substitutionary death of Jesus. Because the lawkeeper gets cursed, we receive the Spirit of God. Now, a little bit ago when we were talking about the law's limitations, we drew some application just in terms of remembering that as we live in light of that, it has a lot to say about self-righteousness, about propping yourself up in terms of moral superiority and leaving the gospel behind, taking on attitudes of, of judgmentalism without regard to your own failings. Well, the flip side is also true. The exchange of blessing and curse should be a balm. Faith crushes self-righteousness, but it's also helpful to the person who might become so aware of sin that they just walk around with this cloud of condemnation hanging over them. Condemnation is not a fruit of the Spirit. The exchange that happens here, when Paul says you've put faith in Christ, he's saying you've put faith in the fact that He took the curse. He took the condemnation. You're now united with Him. You receive His blessings. You don't walk around as one who's waiting to get zapped, if you will. That's not the way you, you think. Living in light of this truth means that there's a joyful, hopefully daily, casting of, of cares and burdens and anxieties because of your failures at the foot of the cross and recognizing the Spirit wipes away condemnation. The Spirit grants assurance. I love how Luther puts this. Luther teaches us how to fight condemnation with the gospel. And he knew something about condemnation. Do you know something about Luther? The whole reason he runs into the gospel in the scriptures is because he was one guilty dude. He, he could have never passed that test to become a police officer. I mean, he'd have gotten the whole polygraph wrong. He was so guilty. He was just consumed by, by condemnation over, over his sins. I mean, he, he confessed so much that his confessor was like, would you just stop it already? You, I, I can't handle that you, you were just in here five minutes ago. Go home for a little bit. At least let him build up for a while before you come back. I mean, he, he's, he's consumed with this sense of condemnation before he grasps the sense of the gospel. So when, when Luther says, you know what the gospel does to condemnation? He's speaking from experience. That's what he says. Battle against that feeling, condemnation, and say, even though I feel myself completely crushed and swallowed by sin, and see God as a hostile and wrathful judge, yet in fact this is not true. It is only my feelings that think so. The Word of God 
which I ought to follow in these anxieties, rather than my own consciousness, teaches much differently. Namely, that God is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit, and that He does not despise the broken and contrite heart. The obligations of the law are unattainable for everyone in this room. The law has no ability to justify any of us. But that shouldn't lead us to condemnation if we have faith in Christ. Because he was able. And just as he takes our curse upon himself, the cross promises us that by faith we are united to him in all of his perfections. And so we receive all the blessings of Abraham and we receive the blessing of the Spirit. And the Spirit testifies against a sense of guilt, against a sense of ongoing condemnation. The Spirit testifies that you are sons and daughters of the living God. Would you bow your heads with me?